Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to take up James chapter 1, verses 16 through 27. I'm going to entitle this section, How Not to Be Hung by the Tongue. I know that sounds like hyper-faith, positive confession, confess it and possess it, mark it and park it, blab it and grab it, scream it and redeem it, call it and haul it, nonsense theology, but it's not. Because like all heresies, the hyper-faith, word-of-faith movement has grabbed a hold of some truth and perverted it beyond recognition. But still, the truth is there, and James is going to tell us we need to be careful how we use our tongue. Our context is this. In the first 15 verses of James 1, James talked about the testing of our faith. He said, God cannot tempt you to sin, whereas the devil will do that. And he spent a lot of time talking about how it's, on the other hand, it's it's a glorious thing. It's a praise, a, 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 a thing of praise that we fall into various temptations. Now it's a little bit different. God doesn't tempt us to sin, but he, but he subjects us to trial. So we now start in verse 16, James chapter 1. James says, don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Now he's talking about brothers here. He's going to call them brothers all the way through the book. He's going to give them some heavy exhortation, but they're still his brothers. This isn't a family discussion here. And how was he, why was he saying, don't be deceived? Well, as both Gil, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown and Clark say, don't be deceived in making God the author of temptation and sin. Remember, that's how we closed up the, up the last audio with how God, is, God can never be tempted by evil. So why would you think that he would tempt somebody else to be evil? Just because it's a wonderful thing to be put into temptation so that, because temptation produces endurance. And we, uh, we're we supposed to count it all joy when that happens and all. But don't think that, that this trial that you're being sent to, that you're being subjected to, don't think that's an invitation to sin. Don't think that's a temptation to sin. That's a fundamental error that strikes at the very nature of God. We go to verse 17 of James chapter 1. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. Now, this every generous act coming from above is to guard against readers thinking that temptation came from God, that same issue I just told you about in verse 13. Let me read verse 13 for you in James chapter 1. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So things are going bad, and you're saying, oh, God, he's, he's, he's leading me into sin. No, he's not. He's, he's leading you into endurance. That's what he's leading you into. And... This is a generous act and a perfect gift which comes from above. This being able to, 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 to do good things instead of being tempted by sin. That comes from God above. Not temptation to sin comes from above, but gifts from, come from above. Now notice that that word generous act in James chapter 1 verse 17 is a different Greek word than a gift. The King James obscures the difference. In James 1.17, King James Version, we read this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. But it's two different Greek words, and the Holman Christian Study Bible splits them out so you can see it. Every generous act, there's the act of giving. It's not a noun, it's a verb there. Well, it's not a, it's, I'm sorry, it's not a verb, but it's the act of giving, not the gift itself. Gift means the thing given. Act means, generous act means the act of giving. So what he's saying here is, and it means basically helping poor people out by giving them money. So every time you do that, that's a gift from God. Every time you help a widow or an orphan or somebody, a saint that needs financial help, that act, that generous act of yours came from above. It came from God putting the 
impulse, the desire in you to give to the poor person. Now, every generous act and every perfect gift is from above. I said that the gift would be like the generous acts that you do in almsgiving and so forth. Here's some other options as to what that gift might be that comes from above. The NIV Study Bible suggests wisdom comes from above. James 1, 5, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing. Gives generously, generous gift, generous act, same context, same chapter. So maybe James is talking about wisdom that comes from above. James 3.17, a couple chapters later, we read this. But the wisdom from above, there's the same phrase there. A gift from above, a wisdom from above, a wisdom from heaven, the gift from heaven. That wisdom is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. Notice the above, as I pointed out in James chapter 1.17. Every perfect gift is from above. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above, so... Some people say that this perfect gift that comes from above is the wisdom of God. NIV study Bible takes that position as perfectly reasonable. John Gill says it's the remission of sins. That gift is comes from above. The forgiveness for our sins. The context of the very next verse supports this. James 1.18 says this, By his own choice, he gave us a new birth. There the new birth is a gift. So... I won't be too dogmatic as to what gift that comes from above. It says every perfect gift, that would include wisdom, that would include the new birth, that would include the desire to give money to the poor, the impetus for generous acts. I don't know what it is. I would say it's all of the above. Coming down from the Father of Lights, that's an expression that we use, we repeat a lot of times without thinking about it. What is light? Who is the, why is God the father of lights? Well, the obvious solution to that is the NIV study Bible and John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown say it's the heavenly bodies that are up there in outer space. God is the creator of those lights. John Gill suggests that it's the narrow, rational, moral light that you find in people like Thomas Jefferson or Voltaire, people who aren't even saved, but they have reason. I don't think so. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown suggest that Perhaps it's spiritual light in regenerate persons. God is the father of all the spiritual light that's in believers and Christians. I don't think so. I think he's talking about the heavenly bodies. Especially when we read the last part of the verse, with him there is no variation, a shadow cast by turning. There, the author, James, is obviously talking about heavenly bodies there. He's trying to say that God is different than the heavenly bodies. The heavenly bodies cast shadows. He doesn't. Have you ever seen an eclipse? That's a heavenly body casting a big shadow on the moon, the earth casting a shadow on the moon. In fact, if, if no shadow of turning, let's take the sun, for example. It has parallaxes. It casts a shadow. It rises. It sets. It appears and disappears every day. It moves from one tropical zone to another. It may be obscured by clouds. It can be eclipsed. The sun's not very stable, is it? It's amazing. Like the the Egyptians, well, they love to worship the sun. Well, that's what they were worshiping, a sun that cast a shadow of turning. God is not like that. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's going to look after you. A shadow of turning, what is James talking about? He's talking, uh, probably talking about the darkness of the sinning heretics that were afflicting the church back then. Here's an example how darkness refers to people who trash the truth. John 3:19. this then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the, than the light because their deeds were evil. People love darkness. Darkness is often a synonym or a metaphor for sin. Light is a metaphor 
for Jesus and the glory of God and moral purity and so forth. We go down to verse 18, James chapter 1. By his own choice, by God's own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruit of all creation. We would be the first fruits of his cre creatures, actually, as my version translates it, Homo Christian Study Bible. He gave us a new birth, the Father did. The NIV merely has birth, but this is not a reference to creation. This is rather regeneration, as the NIV Study Bible says. So it's talking about the new birth, the, the being born again. As in John 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're born one time with physical egg and physical sperm, and then you're born again by the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, and you become a new creation a new, as a result of the new birth, a new birthing of the baby. Now, this birth is contrasted to the conception of sin, which is mentioned in verse 15. Remember, the temptation comes, which entices you to sin, then... Then it gives birth to sin when the sin is conceived. Well, that's a bad birth. This is a new birth, good, a good birth. How is it accomplished? By the message of truth. Homo Christian Study Bible likes to translate word as message. I like word much better. I don't know why. By the word of truth. And, of course, that could be the gospel in general. It could be the written word. It could be the oral word. I don't think it matters. Let's talk about how we're born again by the word. James says... He, God the Father gave us a new birth by the message of truth, by the word of truth. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1, verses 23 through 25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, what is that imperishable seed that we've been born again with? Through the living and enduring word of God. Remember, James says he gave us a new birth by the word of truth. Peter says he gave you've been born again by the enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached as the gospel to you. So the gospel is what makes us born again, so that we would be first fruits of his creation, of his creatures. Now the first fruit was the first sheath of a harvest. It was an indication that the rest of the harvest would follow. So you donate the first sheath to God. That means the rest of the harvest belongs to God too. And the way the metaphor is being used here is James is saying, look, early Christians were an indication that a lot more were going to follow later. The early Christians there in Jerusalem, they were the first fruits, but a lot of other Christians are going to follow later. A little word of encouragement. Let's look at the law about first fruits. This is the law of the first fruits that are to be given after the Passover and after the unleavened bread, unleavened bread feast, which came right after Passover. Leviticus 23, 9-14. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land I am giving you and reap its harvest, you are to bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a Year old lamb, year old male lamb without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering is to be four quarts of fine flour mixed with oil as a fire offering to the Lord. A pleasing aroma and its drink offering will be one quart of wine. You must not eat bread, roasted grain, or any new grain until this very day. And until you have brought the offering to your God, this is to be a permanent statute throughout your generations wherever you live. So you see there's a lot of regulations about this first fruit. It was a big deal in, in the Jewish economy in the Jewish law. And remember, James is incredibly Jewish. He's the most Jewish of all the apostles. And so he, he, he uses Jewish terminology with no problem. 
uses it metaphorically here. Notice he starts out the verse by saying, by his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth. God's own choice. See, election is, is God's decision. Now, of course, Arminians can say, well, the choice is here to give choice, give salvation to anybody, not just an individual. You know, Arminians can't stand that thought of individual election. I prefer to think that God chose to give me a new birth by the message of truth and you a new birth by the message of truth. Well, we can't settle that momentous theological debate based on that one verse, but I thought I would point it out to you. The KGV says, by his own will, he gave us a new birth. That's what he wanted. Now, James says at the end of verse 18 that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. What creatures is he talking about? John Gill says it's all creatures in general, all of mankind. We're the first fruits because we're the ones that got saved. The rest didn't. I don't think so. I think what I mentioned earlier was the way to go, that these were the first Christians. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were the first Christians. Not just Jerusalem, but in the dispersion all around Jerusalem. These Christ, Jewish Christians were the first roots because the Gentiles were coming later. Adam Clark holds to that view. We go to verses 19 and 20 of James chapter 1. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Now here we're going to start talking about the power of the tongue. And that's why I call this section, How Not to Be Hung by the Tongue. Oh my goodness, has this got some practical application for everybody, especially yours truly who likes to get mad and blast certain erroneous political and theological errors that are floating around out there. Everyone must be slow to speak. He's going to pick up on that theme again a few verses later in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. So, any Christian who wants to exemplify the Christian life, one of the first things he has to do is learn to control his tongue. Here's what Adam Clark says. The righteous speak little and do much. The wicked speak much and do nothing. Here's an even better quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This is coming from the Jewish rabbis. Two ears are given to us, the rabbis observe, but only one tongue. The ears are open and exposed whereas the tongue is walled in behind the teeth. So here's a little piece of free advice for all of you who are listening to this audio. Keep your tongue walled behind your teeth. And you say, but sometimes you got to speak. I know that. Sometimes you do. But look at, listen to all these scriptures that talk about controlling your tongue. Proverbs 10:19. When there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his lips is wise. How many times? I like to watch these Lifetime movies about marital problems and the way people get themselves in trouble with their marriages. And one of the best ways to do it is to say something that you don't want to say and you can't take it back. And the problem with women is they remember those words forever. They don't ever forget it. You can apologize. You can say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. But oh, boy, keep your lips shut when you get into the dispute with your wife. And then same thing with the wife ought to keep her lips shut when she's talking about her husband too but especially with the men proverbs 17:27 the intelligent person restrains his words and one who keeps a cool head is a man of understanding i remember reading one time that why so few people can get into politics is because you have to sit there and take mountains of abuse and smile and don't say anything in restraint this is pre-trump of course he doesn't restrain his words 
but he's outside the box. Most people, most politicians have got to learn to restrain their words. Proverbs 17:28. Even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent, discerning when he seals his lips. Ecclesiastes 5:2. Do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And this is talking about being popping off to God. Now, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to express our frustrations to God or communicate with other people. But especially when emotions are high, the best thing to do is to keep your mouth shut and see how things shake out before you and pick your words carefully. Don't don't lose your temper and say something that's going to really come back to hurt you. And notice that being slow to speak is closely tied up with being slow to anger because usually when you speak quickly, you're angry. So you got a double whammy there. Man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. It really doesn't. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Of course, Jesus got angry at the temple money changers in the temple and the sellers of the sacrifices. You recall, he overturned the table twice. He did that twice. He was angry when he did it. So it's not talking about righteous anger. It's talking about when you just get mad. You get angry for your own personal reasons because somebody bumped you the wrong way. We go to James 1, verse 21. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. Therefore, referring to the previous verse, when man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness, since therefore it's a, you're not going to accomplish God's righteousness by speaking with an uncontrolled tongue, because of that, you need to rid yourself of all moral filth and evil. In other words, don't get angry, don't speak too soon, and be morally pure. Humbly receive the implanted word, that's the word of God, that could be the written word or the spoken word, the written word, 2 Timothy 3.15, you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, that of course is written, but it also could be the spoken word too, however, however the word was implanted in you, James says, receive it, that word is able to save you. Now that's interesting because James is writing to saved people. So why is he saying the word is able to save you if they're already saved? Well, one way, is Adam, as Adam Clark says, is he's, James is not writing to save people. He's talking writing to unsaved people. Well, I find that perfectly ridiculous. I don't care how smart Adam Clark is. Sometimes smart people are so smart they verge into insanity. I think that's nonsense. He's talking to Christians. He keeps calling them brothers all the way through the letter. He says brothers, brothers. So I don't think that's the answer. So then, how can the word save Christians who are already, already saved? Well, I think it's talking about temporal salvation, not eternal salvation. The word is able to save us from the evils of this wor- world, of which there are plenty. Now, that's kind of interesting because now we know that as Christians, we read the word or we receive the word given to us from a brother, and that saves us from temporal quagmires that we get ourselves into. That's kind of encouraging, really. The Word's able to save you. The Bible's able to save you. I don't read the Bible. It's too much trouble. You read the Bible five minutes a day. There are very few Christians who really get into the Bible. There are very few Christians who pray for a considerable length of time every day. I wish there was millions more. Now, this implanted Word is able to save you. The King James is able to save your souls. Now, that's an unfortunate translation, I think, because it gives the idea that your souls are separate from your body. The word is able to save your soul, but it's not able to save your body? Well, that makes no sense. If you're in a temporal pit somewhere and, oh yes, we can get your soul out, but your body's going to have to die, that makes no sense. As John Gill says, the word here means soul and body. It's like there were a hundred souls on the airplane that went down. That's typical legal and commercial language. 
What does that mean? Only their spirits went down, their bodies are still up in the air? No, it means their persons, their whole, their whole beings. So bad translation, KGV. It's able to save you as the Holman Christian Study Bible. Save all of you, your body, your soul, and your spirit. The Word is able to heal your emotions. That Word is able to help you communicate with God through your spirit, to heal your emotions, to enlighten your mind, to soften your will and point it toward God. The Word's able to do a lot of stuff. Oh, but I'm too tired to read my Bible every day. James 1, 22 through 24. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now the mirror analogy is used twice in scripture. Here it's you look in a mirror and you see sin. You see things that aren't right. And another portion of scripture, which I'm going to read in just a minute, in 2 Corinthians 3, you look in a mirror and you don't see sin, you see glory, the glory of Christ. So we've got to keep those two uses of the mirror analogy separate. Before we do that, let's look at verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers. That is actually an, a sentiment expressed by Jesus in Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. There is a speaker of the word rather than, than the doer of the word, but the idea is the same. You do the will of the Father in your heaven, then you're going to see Jesus, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, hears these words, that's the hearer, and acts on them, there's the doer, will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. So this is a easy to understand, difficult to do teaching here is hear what Jesus says and then go out and do it. If he says love your enemy, love your enemy. If he says pray for your enemies, pray for your enemies. Just the other day I was convicted. I need to pray for Antifa. Oh my gosh, I despise those people. And Black Lives Matter. Oh, a bunch of Marxist racist thugs. And the the woke left-wingers who are destroying America and who are intellectual fascists and who cannot debate anything. They can only tear down people and get them fired for you because somebody said that all lives matter instead of black lives matter. Oh, fire him. Don't let him be the broadcaster for the Sacramento Kings anymore. So all this stuff is going down. And I've heard Jesus say, love your enemies. That verse is very common. I know about it. But I didn't do anything about it until all of a sudden it hit me. Maybe I ought to start doing what I'm hearing. So I've been praying for him. It's difficult. But the way I pray is not that they succeed in their nonsense, but that they, people within those movements get saved. And come to the Lord, get rid of their hatred and their bigotry. How are these people who look at the word and don't act on it, how are they deceiving themselves? Well, they think that, hey, I, I go to church every Sunday, I hear the good words preached, and I'm a good person. What they're doing, they're putting themselves in a state of carnal security. And they're gonna, there's going to be a rude, rude awakening. As Jesus said, your house is built on the sand when you do that. And wham, one day the storm's going to come and knock your house flat. I told you there was another mirror analogy in the scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is where it is. Let me read it to you. Paul tells the Corinthians, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Transformed into the same image of, of the Lord from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, think about this. If you look in a mirror... It says here in 2 Corinthians 3.18, you're looking at the glory of the Lord. How do you look in a mirror and see the glory of the Lord? Well, if you look in a mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. Aha, yourself. Yourself is the glory of the Lord because Jesus created you 
to be a new man, a new creation. And he, from the foundation of the universe, he planned to display you as an example of his glory and of his handiwork and as his creation and say, look how wonderful John Doe and Susie Q are here. Look at my wonderful Christians that I've made. That is what Christians need to be looking at when they look at a mirror. Now, you take the average woman, you know, they look in a mirror and they look at, oh, my eyebrow in China. In China, is so funny. The women would look in the mirrors and they say, oh, I have a Danyan P. That means a single crease in their eyelid right next to their, to their eyelashes. Oh, I want a Shuangyan P. And they go to these cosmetic, cosmetology places, barbershops, I don't know what you call them, beauty salons, and they get the butcher, excuse me, the uh, proprietor to slice their eyelids so that they'll have two lines instead of one. And, oh, I've got a white hair. i got a wrinkle. Oh, here's a crow's foot right, right here. Oh, my gosh. And they look at every possible flaw there is. If a woman, instead of doing that, would look at that mirror and say, oh, look how beautiful I am. I am made in the image of God, and I am going to be shown to the whole universe as a beautiful handiwork of God my Father. That will change your attitude, folks, if you'll look at something that God has created as something good. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with finding sin. That's what you use mirrors for, right? You see something wrong. Oh, i got something stuck between my teeth. I need to get it out. Oh, i got a zit here. I need to obliterate it. Nothing wrong with that. But you got to remember the point of getting rid of all those things is so that the glory of God will shine itself back out of that mirror. But let's go back here to James 1, 22 through 24. James says, if you just look at the mirror and you hear the word of Jesus, the word of the apostles, says, love your enemy. And then you say, oh, that's nice. And then you go out and you leave the mirror behind. Well, you're not doing anything. You're forgetting that you're a person that doesn't love his enemy. Now, one more point about mirror. I heard this other day on a YouTube video, and I thought this was pretty good. When you look at the mirror and the mirror shows you that there's a problem, do you take the mirror? Let's say you got something stuck between your teeth. Do you take the mirror off the wall and then try to use the mirror to dislodge the material between your teeth? Of course not. The law does not make you holy. It just exposes the lack of holiness, the impurity. It exposes it to you. And then you have to ask Jesus to get that stuff out between your teeth. It's not the law that's going to do it. The law is just a mirror. It, it shows you that you're evil. James doesn't go into that analogy here, but I thought I'd mention that because it's sort of apropos. We go now to James 1, verse 25. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, of course, that's again talking about looking in the mirror. You're looking at the perfect law of freedom. That is not, by the way, the law of Moses. That's the law of Christ. It's the gospel. It's not the moral law, as John Gill says. It's the gospel, as Adam Clark and Jameson Frost say. It's not the law of Moses. You know, James was the most Jewish of the Jewish apostles. If he wanted to say, look intently at the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments, he would have said so, but he didn't. He's talking about the law of Christ. So you look intently at it. For example, love your enemy. Look look at it hard. Ooh, this is, Adam Clark says that this is referring to women who like to look at mirrors. And boy, when a woman looks at her face in a mirror, they take forever. They're making sure that every hair is in the right place, every ornament. If you think about it, uh, women do like to do that. Well, so this is a good analogy here. Be like that woman who looks in the mirror a long time. Keep listening to what Jesus says. Look hard at his words. Consider them. Don't just fluff them off. You don't want to be just a moralist Christian. You want to be a true Christian. Look intently into the perfect law. 
course, the perfect law is the completed law, the law of Christ, which perfects or fulfills the law of Moses. And this is the perfect law of freedom. Moses brings slavery, of course, but the law of Christ brings freedom because Moses does not give you the power to get rid of all those moral imperfections, but the law of Christ does, through the Holy Spirit, give you the power to be free from sin. We're slaves to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus says, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Well, no mirror is going to get that sin. And the mirror will show you the sin, but no mirror is going to get the sin out of your life. Jesus is going to have to do that. Now, if you look intently at the law of freedom, at the law of Christ, and you, through his Holy Spirit, ask you to get rid of any imperfections that you see, and then you go out and do what the law of Christ says, the law, perfect law of freedom says, this person will be blessed in what he does. Here's some scriptures along those lines. Psalm 19:11. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them, the scriptures, the laws. Psalm 1.1, how happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. In other words, happy means blessed. Don't listen to the wicked. Don't walk in the paths of sinners. Don't mock. Your actions are important. Your in, the interior state of your soul, of course, is important, but also your outward actions are important too. We, we don't need to have a false dichotomy there. We go to verse 26 of James 1. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Oh, he's talking about being deceived again. In verse 22 he says, But be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. That's how you can be deceived, by hearing but not doing. And here's another way. Don't control your tongue, then you're deceiving yourself. And folks, we as human beings love to deceive ourselves. What people always say, what is that, denial? <laughs> we were always in denial. No, 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 no. No, my boyfriend's not an axe murderer. You know, that's the stock theme on these Lifetime movies, the perfect husband, the perfect boyfriend. And everybody around saying, ah, oh, he's no good, he's no good. And the girl says, no, he's wonderful. Deceiving herself. Now, if anyone thinks he is religious, we use the term religious in a negative sense almost always now. It means hypocritical, ritualistic pharisaical, all external ritual, but no heart, cold. But here James uses it in a good sense. The word can be used both ways. If anyone thinks he's religious, it means pious. If anyone thinks he's pious, James wants the, the his readers to be pious. So he's not using it in a, in a bad sense here. You learn to control your tongue. This seems to be an allusion to Psalm 39.1, which says this, I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. Yeah. Oh, yes. The woke people who are going around saying, yeah, let's burn a few cities down. As Black Lives Matter is openly advocating, we're going to burn the system down. We're going to, we want to abolish the police. And yes, we're good Marxists. We have a bunch of Marxist theories that we believe in. All of this, which is public, they publicly saying this on the news shows. And if you say anything about that, then you will be crucified on Twitter by a Twitter mob. So what do you do? Well, that's what I'm doing. I'm keeping my mouth shut. By the time you hear this, the trouble we've been passed. But of course, you, if you're woke, I'm sure you're going to think I'm some kind of a racist Nazi or something, you know. But I'm not going to be around to argue with you. Guard your mouth with a muzzle when the wicked are in your presence. You know, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. If you've got somebody that disagrees with you mightily, I don't mind talking with that person. I love talking with people that disagree with me if they're willing to listen to me. And if I'm, and I'll listen to them, and we'll try to find common ground. You define your terms, and then you start to, you know, you discuss from there. 
But I'm telling you, in today's atmosphere, that doesn't happen. There's no philosophical classroom atmosphere anymore. It's all to hell with you. You don't agree with me? Well, I'm going to defriend you. And I don't care if you are my f my relative or my father or grandfather. I, I can't tell you how many friends. I'm 68 years old. I can't tell you how many people I know whose relatives openly trash them. I've had it happen twice here, right in my little neighborhood. Well, so to keep family peace, the old folks just be quiet while their know-it-all millennial snowflake children trash them openly on Facebook. That ain't the way it's supposed to be, folks. James 1.27 Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Looking after orphans and widows, that's an example of being a doer of the word and not a mere hearer of the word because there's a lot of trouble to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Keep yourself unstained by the world. That is talking about the world of people in alienation from God, the world of people in rebellion against God, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. It's not talking about the physical world, nature, the trees, the, the, the fish, the rocks, the skies. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil world, the world system and alienation and rebellion against God. Keep yourself unstained by that. Now, obviously, the Christians aren't going to jump right into the world, but they can get close enough to it to where they pick up some stains. Try not to do that, James is saying. Keep yourself unstained. So you see here, here is holiness on the one hand and pious acts on the other, taking care of widows and orphans. There is no dichotomy between the two. You know, like Samaritan's Purse, they go preach the gospel. They help people in their distress. That's a good thing. It's scriptural. Ladies and gentlemen, we finished with James chapter 1. In our next audio, we're going to take up James 2, verses 1 through 13, where James discusses the sin of partiality. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>